It's an amazing little section. It's an incredible section, actually. In fact, this whole chapter is the beginning. In fact, it sets the scene, really, for the next incredibly important narrative in the life of Abraham. In fact, really, these next few chapters, you could gather together and say, we really need to cover them all, but we're not going to. Uh, because we've only got a relatively short time this afternoon. We can't spend three hours looking at the whole of this next incident, but it is really that important. It becomes critically important in the rest of the Bible story. Abraham, Sodom and Gomorrah. Many of us will have heard of that as a kind of a link, the name of Abraham and the phrase Sodom and Gomorrah. But we want to set the scene really this, uh, this afternoon. Begin, shall we? by looking at this chapter. I want to uh, introduce you to an incredibly important idea that emerges with regards to Abraham. James chapter 2, 23 says this of Abraham. Abraham believed God and it was credited to him as righteousness. We saw that. We looked at that a few weeks ago. What is it to actually come into relationship with God? What is it to know God? It is to believe him. That's what the Bible says. It starts with Abraham. James confirms it later on. To believe, we've, we can spend, in fact, if you come along here regularly, what you'll see is that we try to understand bit by bit what does it really mean to believe. I can believe in lots of things, but I can believe in God. It's different. And over time, we investigate, we think about what it means to actually believe. But it goes on to say this, and he was called God's friend. I don't know about you, I've got some, some great friends, but I think friend is probably one of the most abused words in the English language these days. If you ask anybody under a certain age how many friends have you got, um, the mind doesn't necessarily immediately go to those people who you go out and you have a meal with or you go out for a drink with or you go and play sport with or whatever it might be. Your mind immediately goes to a screen which is normally blue and there's somewhere on the screen, depending on whether you've gone to timeline or not, you know, you work out how many friends you've got. What an abused idea friendship is. How many friends have you got? How about the idea, I'm, I'm just going to go and delete some friends. <laughs> normally that would have put you in prison in the past, but you can now delete friends and not end up in court. But what an abused word. What an abused idea friends are in our generation. What does it really mean to be a friend? Ironically, I saw a, an advert just in the past day or so that was relating to this. It's on the back of a, 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 a wagon which was advertising. I think it was Tetley Smooth. You'll see the irony in a moment, those of you who know. It said on the back, it had a f statement a friend is someone who lets you have total freedom to be yourself, Jim Morrison. Those of you who know anything about Jim Morrison, Jim Morrison, lead singer of The Doors, famous band in the 60s, actually ended up, um, although there was never an autopsy carried out because his family refused uh, to have an autopsy in an absolute mess uh, with a massive, massive drink issue. Uh, dying in a hotel in Paris. What a tragedy. I actually think that what 
Jim Morrison really needed more than anything else was not a friend who allowed him to be whatever he wanted to be. Rather, what he needed was a friend who was willing to say no. A, willing, a friend who's willing to stand in the, in the firing line, put his head above the parapet, uh, and stand nose to nose and stop him. You know, that's what a really good friend is. So what does it really mean to be a friend as described in this? Rather than the tragedy that we see in Jim Morrison, what does it mean to be a friend of God? In actual fact, this particular chapter is the foundation for that very statement that we read in James, where it says that Abraham was a friend of God. This chapter is probably the foundation for it, because what we see opened up is a remarkable uh, incident. Beginning of the chapter, we have another occasion where God intervenes in the life of Abraham, not from a distance, but personally. Read in, chapter, in verse 1 of chapter 18, the Lord appeared, the Lord appeared to Abraham near the great trees of Mamre while he was sitting at the entrance to his tent in the heat of the day. I want you to imagine the scene, because <coughs> really that's what we need to do to come to terms with what is going on. In that uh, particular location, you would not travel in the heat of the day. You would travel in the morning, you would travel in the evening. Abraham is in the sweltering heat of the desert sun, sat at uh, the entrance to his tent, and then coming out of the shimmering sands uh, appear three characters, three uh, men in appearance. We later find out that two of them are angels. Uh, They didn't have wings on. They didn't fly around just about three foot off the ground. They looked like men. And they were walking along with another person who reveals, as we see the story unfold, as God himself, the Lord. How do we come to terms with that? What is the Bible saying? Well, it's saying that God is the kind of God, firstly, who intervenes in a way which is real, in a way which is visible. He does that 2,000 years ago in Jesus' son. And he does it at this point in what we would see as a pre-incarnate representation of God present in this world. Here's God in the world. What a remarkable event. But for Abraham, at this particular point in time, as he sat at the edge of the, uh, the, the doorway of his tent, he just sees three people coming towards him. He looked up, he saw the three men standing by. He went over to see them and he said, look, effectively what he said is, look, culturally it's absolutely the right thing to do for me to give you hospitality. You know, we've got to remember that we now live in a world with a massive population. Our country, uh, actually our country, even though we're going through uh, a recessionary time, uh, there are more people working in this country, more people working in this country than ever before. That's a remarkable statistic, isn't it? In In the issues of concern that we have in this country right at this point in time, uh, there are more people working. I, I was left school in 1981 when there was a, another major recession. There was all sorts of difficulties in getting a job. We were looking at unemployment at similar, similar kinds of levels. But the unemployment rate, similar kind of level, was based on 40, 45 million people in the UK. There's now 62 million people in the UK. That's not what the world was like for Abraham. There were relatively few people in the world. 
And so when you saw somebody coming across uh, the desert, it was absolutely normal for you to offer some level of hospitality. And he does just that. He offers them some water and some food. They take him up on the offer. Uh, And then we get a little glimpse (coughs) of what actually happens. I think it's a great little picture that we see here. Abraham uh, very calmly walks over to the guys and says, um, let let me get you some water to wash your feet. Let me get you some food. Uh, He's, I think, already upon him. He's coming to terms with perhaps who these people are. He's beginning to see that this is perhaps not some ordinary visitor's. Uh, But this is a moment of significance. You know, God always breaks in in that way. There are moments when you realize the significance of God speaking to you. There have been many occasions when I've had the privilege of being able to talk to people as they've been able to recount that moment in time when God dealt with them in a way which was remarkable. The presence of God became real in a way that it wasn't before. Before it was just an idea, now it becomes real. Right at this moment in time, Abraham Abraham realizes that there is something significant about these visitors. Would you like me to get you some water? Would you like me to get you a little bit of food? Yeah, that will be great. We'll take you up on that offer. He turns around, closes the door of the tent, and goes mental. (laughs) He really does. Sarah, quick, quick, get some seers of flour. Get some seers of the very best. Knead it into bread. Make some bread really quickly. You know, if he was just being acceptably hospitable, he would have given them a little bit of what he already had. He would have given them a little bit of water. But what he does is he dashes into the tent and he says, quick, let's get things moving. Make some bread really quickly. Dashes out the back of the tent. Maybe he's got a door at the front and the back. Dashes out the back, gets a hold of one of his servants, selects the best calf, slaughters it, on the go, uh, this is pretty fresh meat that he's about to serve them. He sl- they slaughter it on the go. They prepare the meat. And within a short period of time, these visitors are being provided with the best calf, with the best bread, with curds, and the best provision from Abraham. Isn't it remarkable? He says, quick, get three sears of flour, flour uh, the finest flour. Not just any flour, the finest flour, knead it and make some bread. He ran to the herd. He ran to the herd. This is an old man. And he ran. There is, we, we miss very often when we read the Bible. We just read that, don't we? We have this picture of this man running to do a job. There is something massively, massively significant about the idea of Abraham, the old patriarchal head of everything that is around him. He is the one who is dashing to choose the best calf. He could have given it to somebody else. What is he doing in that statement by being the one himself who goes and does all of the work? He is saying, I recognize that even though in the confines of my own community and in the confines of my own family, as the patriarchal head of this family, I am the, I am the king, if you like. I am the leader. Everybody would do what I ask. When these guys have arrived, I am the one who is serving them. 
I am going to put myself in a place of submission to them. I am going to be the one who is personally going to provide for them. Then he brought some curds and milk and the calf that had been prepared. We live in a world <coughs> excuse me. We live in a world we were around we were doing some shopping yesterday in the supermarket. We live in a world of astounding provision, don't we? Don't we, we really do. I think our supermarkets now compared to uh, well it's just progressing. Every time it seems as though there is more and more available to us. We don't understand what it means to be a provider of food. In a day where food was scarce, relatively speaking. Jesus tells a story many years later about uh, a father who slaughters a calf for the return of a son. And the older son, who's really angry, uh, looks at that and says, you never even slaughtered a, a, a young goat for me. You never did even that. Why? Because food was scarce in this world at this particular point in time. And yet Abraham gives of the very best he could possibly give to these visitors. What happens next in the Old Testament is remarkable. Abraham takes that provision and he gives it to the three people, one of whom is the Lord himself, and they eat it. <laughs> yeah, of course, that's what you do when you get a meal. In actual fact, that is amazing. In every other occasion where people bring food to the God present in this world, in the Old Testament, it becomes the basis of a sacrifice. Every other occasion, you look at um, Samson's mother. Do you remember that? A few months ago, we were looking at that. Samson's father brought some food, and it becomes the basis of a sacrifice. God doesn't stop and eat with him. <laughs> and yet, here we see the Lord himself stops and he eats the food with Abraham. In cultural terms, that is incredibly important. That is, I am a friend. We might think it's a provision of food. It would have been culturally acceptable for Abraham to give some water to wash their feet, to give some reasonable provision, but for him to go to the excess that he went to is an extension of his statement of saying, I consider you to be my friend. That's what I'm saying. I could have done lots of other things, but I am making a statement, I want to be your friend. You know, effectively this in our cultural terms, that's like a, it's like a physical friend request. It's like saying, pressing the button and saying, will you be my friend? For those of you who got, haven't got Facebook, that's what you do. You make a request. Will you be my friend? At the other end, depending on your security settings, at the other end, somebody says, I accept that friend request. And that is exactly what God does. Because he sits down with him and he eats the food. He accepts the friend request of Abraham. That is an amazing thing that happens at this moment in time. God becomes the friend of Abraham. 
Yes, he's always been his God. Yes, they've always been in relationship, but the relationship moves to another stage now. They become friends. They've always been, because God has chosen Abraham, they've always been in a remarkable relationship, but now it moves on apace. What does it look like when it moves on apace? Well, what we see here is it's bi-directional, isn't it? It's not all one way. It works in both directions. And that bi-directional relationship starts to work out. Because this isn't just a happening, a sort of passing by. That's what Abraham would have perhaps thought as he saw three indistinct figures emerging from the desert sun. What are these people doing? I'd better make sure we've got some water and a bit of bread. And then when he realizes who they are and the significance that these are perhaps not just ordinary visitors and they sit down and they eat a meal and he extends friendship and the friendship is, ex- is reciprocated by sitting down and eating and accepting and not consuming that meal as a sacrifice with fire from heaven, which is what we see elsewhere, we realize that they're here for a purpose. Because Abraham, who has already been a blessing to these three visitors by providing food for them, is blessed in a remarkable way by these visitors. Because the next amazing piece of news is a confirmation of this journey that we have been going through with Abraham and Sarah from the very beginning. You know, that there's this thread underneath the whole of the story, isn't there? How is God going to work out His promise? How is He going to deliver what He said is going to happen? Abraham, Abram at the beginning, and Sarai, as they left Haran, she was without child. She couldn't have a child. She couldn't have a baby. And God made a promise progressively to Abraham that from his wife, he was going to deliver his promises. It's almost as though the narrator is deliberately and God is deliberately in the events, stacking it up, stacking it up, stacking it up, making it more and more clear progressively as time goes on. You want me to deliver the promise? I'm going to make sure that you understand that it is me delivering the promise. You know, it's indistinct initially. You're going to have a child. Then a bit later on, you're going to have a child through Sarah. If you were here a couple of weeks ago, if you weren't, you can download it off the website. We looked at the fact that Sarah and uh, Abraham decided to take the issue into their own hands and used the slave girl to try to resolve the issue. Now we see that the last week we saw that the promise ratchets up because within a year, and now this messenger says very clearly, within a year, I am going to return and Sarah will be with a child. Where is your wife, Sarah? Verse 9, they asked him. There in the tent, he said. Then one of them said, I will surely return to you about this time next year, and Sarah, your wife, will have a son. That is... Well, put it this way. Have you ever had a friend who makes all sorts of promises and never delivers? (laughs) 
we were chatting, you know, reminiscing a few days ago, Rach and I, about, you know, things that happened in life. And she recounted the story of somebody who she knew when she was a little girl who, uh, she gave out some sweets in the, uh, in the little group that they were in and Rach didn't have any sweets. And she said, oh, I've, I've, got, a, I've got some sweets in this bag. I'll, and she spent five minutes digging around in the bag and then realized, well, as you get older, you realize there was never any sweets in the bag. That promise could never be delivered. I'll get you some sweets out of the bag and then you realize actually the promise could never be delivered. What kind of promise is this? It is the most horrible, offensive uh, promise that you could ever imagine. All of hope, all of security, all of promise, it is the most atrocious thing that you could possibly say to Sarah at this particular point in time if you could not deliver against it. But if you have the power and the authority to deliver against it, then it is the most remarkable promise, isn't it? And that reveals a little bit more about what God is like. He's the kind of God he might make promise and promise and promise, but they are empty promises unless he has the power and authority to deliver against them. And what we see unfolding is he is exactly that kind of God. He is a God who can make promises, and he, they seem the most remarkable out of possibility promises that you could ever imagine, and then he can deliver against them, because that is the kind of God that he displays in the past, and therefore the challenge for you and me today is if he is the kind of God who displays those kind of impossible promises that come to fruition in the future in the lives of others, might it not be that we should therefore believe that the promises that this God makes to us can equally be delivered? Because that's what he is displaying. That's why it happens. At least that's why it happens in this way. So that we might realize that God is a God of progressive promise that he can deliver against. Even when it seems impossible. That's a God who is worthy of our praise. Sarah laughs. She calls her son Isaac, which means laughing, um, because actually he who laughs last laughs longest. She laughed. Abraham laughed last week, but God laughs in the end because exactly what seemed impossible became possible. See, friends are those who bless are you the kind of person who in your friendships, in your relationships, is, a, well, I'll put it this way. I read a great book. It's called Zap, little kind of story type book, management book, worth a read. And if you are involved in any kind of leading people, well worth a read. It's about the idea that you can be a zapper or a sapper. So you can zap people. You can kind of be the kind of person who gets a hold, encourages, supports, knits into people, builds relationships. You can zap them. You can build a relationship. Or are you a sapper? Are you the kind of person that just sucks out and, and takes out and drains? Sarah's a bit of a sapper here. <laughs> You're kidding me, aren't you? I'm old, he's old, forget it, dream on. <laughs> but then remarkably, when she's challenged about that, 
she lies. Why? Because I think Sarah knew as well the significance of the people who were here. Are you the kind of person who's a sapper or a zapper? Are you the kind of person who in your relationships is the sort of person that blesses, encourages? And really, let's look at it this way as we come back to Jim Morrison for a moment. What he needed most was a friend who was willing to bless by standing firm and being honest and taking the flack but being loving by telling the truth. You see, that's zapping as well. It feels like sapping when you're on the receiving end of somebody dealing with you in a loving, kind, but firm way. Why is it that people didn't stand up to Jim Morrison? Why is it that people didn't stand there and say, you've got to stop this? Those of you who know anything about the Miami incident, why isn't there anybody who says, don't do it? Because they knew that if they did that, they would lose the gravy train. And in actual fact, they are the most self-serving of people to not stand up and say no. But the great thing is the God who we worship is the kind of God who stands up in the face of us and says, stop. Because he is a God who blesses at times by confronting us. He's a God who blesses at times by lifting us up out of the mess, but He's also a God who confronts us. He will zap us by challenging us. So as Sarah laughs, the response is, yes, you did laugh. It's all that's needed. You need to listen to me. The next remarkable section is friends who share. The men got up to leave, verse 16. They looked down towards Sodom and Gomorrah, or Sodom, and Abraham walked along with them to see them on their way. Then the Lord said, this is an amazing verse. (laughs) It's almost like we get into a little, uh, we get into the mind. God, God didn't say this as in he says it to Abraham. He just, we are allowed to get the questions that are going on. God questioning, God thinking. Should I hide from Abraham what I'm about to do? Why is it a big deal what God is about to do? Because his nephew Lot is down there. That's why it's a big deal. Should I hide it? There's times when we think that the only way that God can love us is by only ever doing and saying nice things to us. If we have got that idea of God, we have got a a small God, a weak God. Should I say something here? Yes, I'll say it. Because as tough as it is, What it will do is create the spark for the dialogue that follows. Because what happens is God says, I've heard about Sodom and Gomorrah. We're going to cover Sodom and Gomorrah next next week. 
fantastically important. It's possibly one of the most challenging Old Testament sections that you can imagine. I want to encourage you, if you've got friends who are challenged by the message of the Bible, get them to come along next week, but it, because it is a, a, a really difficult text, and therefore let's face up to it and work it through with a bit of honesty. That's next week. But what opens up here is, as God says, I've heard all about Sodom and Gomorrah. Their cry has gone up to me. And Abraham's response, he becomes, he becomes a priest in a sense. He starts to intervene. He intervenes for the sake of righteous in Sodom. He says, well, hang on, I know what you are like. I know that you are, I'm paraphrasing here, but effectively what he says, I know that you are a good God. That's what you are like. And if you just wipe it out indiscriminately, you're going to wipe out good with bad. What if there's some good in there? What if there's some righteous? What if there are some in there who actually will still turn to you? Well, I won't for the sake of 50. And then the priestly work begins. It's amazing the way this story unfolds. Well, okay, 50. I, I have no right whatsoever to say this. I am the dust. I am, I am nothing in front of you. But what about 45? <laughs> uh, how about 40? Do you think we might be able to come to 40? I, I know what you are like. Everything that he says is not a negotiation. It is an appeal to the nature of God. It's saying, I know what you are like. This isn't some sort of trading off that's going on. Abraham's standing on behalf of people. He's saying, look, I'm concerned that you are who you are. You're the kind of person who would never wipe out the righteous. What about 30? I won't wipe out the city for 30. What about 20? I won't wipe it out for 20. What about 10? I won't wipe it out for 10. That's remarkable. What is it? What does it say? It says that the God revealed in the Bible is a God of astounding grace. Astounding grace. I will, I will listen. I will respond. I will see righteousness. I will declare righteousness and I will preserve for the sake of righteousness because that's what I am like. It comes down and down. And that's where it ends. When the Lord had finished speaking with Abraham, he left and Abraham returned home. What's happened? That conversation has gone on between two people. The other two have now gone in to Sodom. We'll see how that unfolds. But what is God like? Over 2,000 years later, Jesus comes into the world. And one of the things that he is accused of is eating with the wrong people. Matthew chapter 9, verse 10 and 11. He eats with a tax collector called Matthew. 
And, and you know, the, 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 the religious elite are absolutely scandalized by that. He, tax collectors, they're horrible, offensive uh, traitors. They're, they're ch- dirty cheats. And the kind of people that they mix with are horrible people. And Jesus says, yes, I know, and they're exactly the kind of people who I am friends with. I become friends with those. In fact, I become such a friend with people like that that I'm the kind of God who brings blessing on them. What does blessing look like? It looks like lives turned around. So they might have once been that, but I intervene in their lives so much that they get changed by my presence. Yeah, they might extend to me a meal, but I become a blessing to them, which is beyond anything that they can imagine. You see the pattern unfolding? Abraham gives gives God a meal, gives the Lord a meal at this particular point in time, but the blessing is way more. I will give you hope and identity and a future in a child. And he says, effectively to the pharisaical religious leaders who hate anything that looks dirty, Jesus says, yes, I will love the kind of people that don't look as if they should be loved, but in those little extensions of response to me, which I've planted in them in the first place, I will pour out my blessing amazingly, remarkably. That's great news, isn't it? Because the God who we see displayed in Abraham becomes the God who we'd see displayed in Jesus. And you say, well, that's great, but Jesus was 2,000 years ago, and we're now. Listen to what it says in Revelation chapter 3 and verse 20. It says this, here I am. I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come in and eat with that person and they with me. That is the most amazing offer. God says that. He says, I am standing and maybe... You are in that situation where you know, you know deep down that the kind of thoughts, the kind of responses, the things that have been going on in your mind as you've been coming to terms with this message of the Bible over these past weeks, months, or years, you know that it is more than just interest and speculation. You know that there is a greater power and a greater authority which is making demand of you. What is that? The Bible says here that that is God in Jesus by the power of the Holy Spirit standing at the door of your heart, your inner being, knocking on it saying, if you will open this door, I will come in and pour my blessing upon you in a way which is more amazing than you could ever imagine. I will describe that as me coming in and eating with you. And the pattern goes like this. It says to you and it says to me, the God of the Bible is a God who will still extend his friendship to you 
and to me. I don't deserve it. You don't deserve it. We have no right to demand it. We come as Abraham did with absolutely nothing. We come as empty, broken people. We come like Matthew did as a liar and a cheat. But God says, I am the kind of God who if you respond, if you open that door, do you know what? I'll become your friend. The great thing is, that the friend that we see described here is the kind of friend who can, who can deliver the most outrageous promises, the most impossible promises, the kind of promises that says that if I'm your friend, it's not just for now, it's forever. Forever. It's an eternal friendship. It's a friendship that can never, ever be broken because that's the kind of promise I can deliver. If I can deliver a baby to a woman who's well outside of childbearing age and say that it's going to happen in a year's time and then deliver it, if I can, I'm the kind of person who can come into this world and make the promise that if you nail me to a cross, he didn't say this, but effectively he says this, if you kill me, I will rise again in three days' time. If I'm the kind of God who can deliver those kind of promises and I say to you, respond to me knocking on the door and I will come into your life and I will befriend you for all of eternity so that you can live a life now knowing that you have eternal peace. Isn't that a God who is worth responding to? That's amazing news. Friend, friend of sinners, friend of people who don't deserve it. That is the God that we see step by step revealed and it starts this idea of friendship right here.